Thank you. Good morning. The political, social, cultural events of the second half of this decade has revealed the true color of our youngest definable generation, popularly known as Generation Z. Since 2016, they have been coddled and cuddled with virtual pacifiers for any and every reason that would seem remotely inconvenient to them. Just to put things in perspective, the last generation at the turn of the previous century was called the Lost Generation, and they fought World War I. The Greatest Generation fought World War II. The Silent Generation fought the Korean War and the Vietnam War. The baby boomers from 1946 to 1964, they were hardworking, building and establishing lives. Generation X, my generation, were the latchkey kids, largely ignored by their boomer parents as they rebuild their own lives. The millennials saw the war against terror and 911. And then we come to Generation Z. And their troubles relate to their candidate losing an election or not getting admission into the college that they want, and so on. Of all these generations, Generation X, my generation, is the most misunderstood generation. You may disagree with that statement, but that's okay. I'm used to being misunderstood. This morning, we are going to look at the most misunderstood person in the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In a sermon entitled, The One Question, we will look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of two groups of people. And our text is John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. I've divided the sermon into two broad halves. In the first half, we will look at the role of the Holy Spirit in relation to the devoted worshiper, and we'll look at three things in that section. In the second half, we will look at the role of the Holy Spirit in relation to the distant wanderer, and we'll look at three things in that section. And somewhere along the way, we will try to pick up some other thoughts as well. So first, let's look at the role of the Holy Spirit in relation to the devoted worshiper. The Holy Spirit cooperates. The Holy Spirit cooperates. The first area where the Holy Spirit cooperates with us is in the region of comfort. John chapter 16 and verse 7 reads, Very truly I, say, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Jesus is speaking this. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The word for advocate is the word parakletos, and para means along, alongside. And that word is translated as advocate or comforter or even helper. And it is used in Greek literature for a defense lawyer that is called alongside to render aid. American humorist Irma Bombeck tells of God in the act of creating mothers. She said that on the day God created mothers, he had already worked long time overdue. And an angel said to him, Lord, you sure are spending a lot of time on this one. The Lord turned to her and said, have you seen the specs on this model? She's supposed to be completely washable, but not plastic. She's to have 180 moving parts, all of them replaceable. She's to have a kiss that will heal everything from a broken leg to a broken heart. She's to be able to function on just black coffee and leftovers. And she's supposed to have six pairs of hands. 
Six pairs of hands, said the angel. That's impossible. It's not the six pairs of hands that bother me, said the Lord. It's the three pairs of eyes. She's supposed to have one pair that sees through closed doors so that whenever she says, what are you kids doing in there? She already knows what they are doing in there. She has another pair at the back of her head to see all the things she is not supposed to see, but she sees them anyway. And then she has one pair right in the front that can look at a child that has just goofed up and communicate love and understanding without saying a word. That's too much, said the angel. You can't put that much into one model. Why don't you rest for a while and resume your creating tomorrow? No, I can't, said the Lord. I'm close to creating someone very much like myself. I've already come up with a model who can heal herself when she's sick, who can feed a family of six with one pound of hamburger, and who can persuade a nine-year-old to take a shower. <laughs> the angel reached over and touched her cheek. This one has a leak, the angel said. I told you that you couldn't put too much into one model. That's not a leak, said the Lord. That's a tear. What's a tear for, said the angel. Well, it's for joy for sadness, for sorrow, for disappointment, for pride. You're a genius, said the angel. For a child, there's no better comfort than the comfort that a mother can give. And on a much deeper level, there is no better comfort for a believer than that given by the Holy Spirit. During our times of darkness, disappointments, depression, sorrow, failure, and inadequacy, the comfort that is given by the Holy Spirit is so special that it cannot be explained, it cannot be described, it cannot be duplicated. The second area where the Holy Spirit acts in the devoted worshiper is in the area of guidance. Verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. It says he will guide you into all the truth. For a non-believer, that truth is Jesus Christ, because Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth. For a non-believer, the Holy Spirit guides them to Jesus Christ. For a believer, the Holy Spirit guides us into the truth of God's word and decree. And it says that the Holy Spirit will tell you what is to come. What is to come? We would love to know what is to come. I would love to know which team is playing for the Super Bowl this coming year. I wouldn't waste watching a lot of games. We would love to know what is to come. But that is how the Holy Spirit guides us. He guides us by showing us what is to come. I'm going to read four verses and I'm going to ask you two questions. Okay? Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Matthew chapter 2, 19 through 23. The context is that Jesus and his parents, Jesus was a toddler, his parents fled from Israel to Egypt to escape the killing by Herod. And now they are in Egypt, and now they are being asked by God to go back. I'm going to read these four verses, and I'm going to ask you two questions. The first of them is an actual question. The second is a rhetorical question. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. 
Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Let me ask you the question. How many dreams did Joseph see in this passage? Two, right? Everybody agree? Let me ask you the rhetorical question. Why? Why did Joseph see two dreams? You see, Egypt was on the southwest side of Israel. There was one dream for Joseph to come from Egypt to Judea, and then another dream for him to go from Judea up north to Galilee and Nazareth. Why two dreams? Why didn't God give him one dream, go from Egypt to Nazareth directly? You see, it's because God will never reveal two steps for you. He will show you the next step, not two steps ahead. Of course, God can make exceptions to the rule and he can show you many steps ahead. But that's not how it is. He shows you one step. You take the one step, then he'll show you the next step. You take that step, then he'll show you the next step. If I knew my life for the next five steps, I don't need God for the next four steps. You see, God wants me to be dependent on him for every step of my life. And so he's going to show me step by step by step. And the Holy Spirit will guide us step by step by step. The third role of the Holy Spirit in a worshiper's life is in the area of witness. In the area of witness. John chapter 15 and verses 27 through 20. 26 through 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You see what's happening here? The Holy Spirit bears witness and we bear witness. And you see how the Holy Spirit cooperates with us. In the region of comfort, he comes alongside with us. In the region of guidance, he comes alongside and guides us. In the region of witnessing, he comes alongside and cooperates with us. The goal of evangelism is being a witness for Jesus. And that is what we all as believers are supposed to do. But it's also the role of the Holy Spirit to support us as we witness. The Holy Spirit gives us words and wisdom that we would otherwise not, not know. I remember in Christmas Eve, 1997, I was riding my bike to my aunt's house where I was staying that time because my aunt was abroad. I was staying in my aunt's house every night. And Christmas Eve, 97, I took my moped and I drove. And as I was going to my aunt's house, I saw two people passing by. And something told me to go back and talk to them about Jesus. I mean, it was Christmas Eve, there was a great reason to talk. So I went back, talked to them about Jesus, and as I told them about Jesus, one of them asked me this question. Wow, Jesus was a proud man. I said, what makes you say that? He said, well, he said, I am, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life, I am the resurrection. I'd said those verses and he said, wow, he's so proud. At that point, 
how do I respond, right? So then I said, well, what of the two guys, what are you studying to be? He said he's going to be an accountant. What are you studying to be? He's going to be a dentist. I said, okay, once you become an accountant and a dentist, and if somebody asks you, what do you do, what are you going to say? He said, I'm going to say that I'm an accountant. The other guy said, I'm a dentist. I said, no matter how you say it, whether you crawl on the ground and say it, or whether you stand up somewhere and say it, you're going to say the same thing. You are going to say who you are. It is not that Jesus was proud. He was just stating a fact. You see, that word wasn't my own. Nobody had ever asked me that question. That came to me. There were times when we used to do street evangelism in the 1990s back in India. And we had this little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws written by Bill Bright from Campus Crusade for Christ. And we would, it would take about eight minutes to go through the whole thing and it had about 10 pages or so. And we would go through some random person on the street and ask them, have you heard of The Four Spiritual Laws? Of course they would say no. And we'd say, do you want to hear it? Sure. Law number one, law number two, law number three. By the end of the booklet, which is about 10 pages long, there were two circles that showed one circle with me at the center and the life is disorganized and the other circle with Jesus at the center and the life is organized. And we would ask them at the end of this eight-minute conversation of this random, non-believing Hindu, we would ask them, which circle do you want to represent your life? And many times they would point to the circle on the right and say, I want Jesus into my life. And that was absolutely stunning to us. How could an eight-minute conversation lead to a conversion? You see, it wasn't our witnessing. It was the Holy Spirit that was alongside of us sharing the gospel while we were talking. It's not like it's a 50-50 break. I do 50% of the work and the Holy Spirit does 50% of the work. No, it's a much, much greater disparity. I do probably 0.000001% of the work and the Holy Spirit does all the rest of it. Mark chapter 13 verse 11 says, Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. I have friends who are missionaries in places where one wrong word can result in them being imprisoned, tortured, and killed. For them, the dependence on the Holy Spirit during witnessing is very, very real. There are numerous other roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of a worshiper, including that of making us holy. He continues to make us holy from the time we were born again till the time we die. And we talk of being filled in the Spirit. But what is it? What does it mean to be filled in the Spirit? And if you've been in church long enough, you've heard that. Be filled in the Spirit and there are verses about it. What does it mean to be filled in the Spirit? Let me read two verses. One is an example, one is a command. Acts chapter 4 verse 31 reads, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So that's an imperative, that's a command. Be filled in the Spirit. When we think of God the Father, 
We think of God the Father as a person with all the attributes. The attribute of infinity, of faithfulness, of love and holiness and glory and anger and jealousy and omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence and so on. When we think of Jesus, we think of him as the God-man, the historical figure that walked on earth and died for us and rose again. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there is a little confusion. Well, what, who is the Holy Spirit? Is it a spirit, like it says, Holy Spirit? Or is it a vapor? Is it a wind? Is it a presence? Is it a thing? But the Holy Spirit is a person, just like God the Father and God the Son. When a person becomes a believer, the Holy Spirit comes into that person. Okay, sometimes when we talk of filling of the Spirit, we think, well, um, Lord, give me more of the Spirit. But what do we mean by give me more of the Spirit? Is it like the Holy Spirit is a tablet, like medicine, like antibiotic? I want to take two milligrams of the Holy Spirit in the morning, two milligrams of the Holy Spirit in the afternoon, two in the night, and two before I go to bed, and I'll be filled just right. Is that what it means? No, because the Holy Spirit is a person. He is either in you or out of you. When we are non-believers, the Holy Spirit is not in us. But when we do become believers, the Holy Spirit comes into us and there is a period when the Holy Spirit comes into us, but the Holy Spirit has not yet filled us. And many of us live in that space. Where the Holy Spirit is, is in us, and once you're a believer, the Holy Spirit never leaves. But He's not filling us. And it's a daily thing to be filled in the Holy Spirit. And let the Spirit fill you. When the Holy Spirit fills you, it's not from the outside, because He's inside. He fills us from the inside. But for a non-believer, the distant wanderer, the Holy Spirit is not in that person. And there are three things that the Holy Spirit does for that person, even though from the outside. And we will turn to that now. He convicts. The three things that he does is that he convicts. The first thing that he convicts is about iniquity, about sin. Verse 8 and 9, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit convicts the world about sin. That means the world is wrong about sin. What is the world wrong about sin? The biblical view of sin is that it is a grievous mistake against God. But the world thinks that it is okay and permissible. We think of it as a mistake. We think of sin as a mistake. But if you're doing a deliberate, planned deed, that's not a mistake. Right? I mean, that's not, oh, it so happened. No, that's not a mistake. If you do something that's repeated multiple times, that's not a mistake. That's a sin. In her March 2000 song, Oops, I Did It Again, Britney Spears writes these words, and I must warn you and I must apologize, because when you read these words, these lyrics have the level of a fourth grader, so I apologize. Oops, I did it again to your heart. Got lost in this game, 
oops, you think that I'm sent from above. I'm not that innocent. I'm glad she clarified it, just in case you thought that she was from above and that she is innocent. But that's the attitude we have. Oops, I did it. But that's not what God thinks about sin. We see our deliberate sins as mistakes. God sees them as a crime against him. In his book, Exploring Romans, John Phillips writes, men try to cover sin, excuse it, and camouflage it. They call it by respectable names. A person is not a drunkard, he is an alcoholic. Drunkenness is not a sin, it is a disease. A person is not a liar, he is a prevaricator or an extrovert with a lively imagination. Men speak of people as having complexes, phobias, and inhibitions. They talk of a book as being daring, God would call it filthy. They say a man is had an affair, God would say he's committed adultery. This is one of the games people play, and a deadly and dangerous game it is. The biggest sin anyone can do is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. There is no bigger sin than that. The second role of the Holy Spirit in a wanderer is in relation to integrity, about righteousness. He convicts the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. In what aspect is the world wrong about righteousness? In what aspect is the world wrong about righteousness? It was wrong about sin. In what aspect is it wrong about righteousness? You see, the problem with the religious is that we think that we can earn righteousness. And the Bible counters that by saying righteousness cannot be earned, it is a gift of God. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. The irreligious think that, well, we are naturally good and we don't need anybody else's righteousness. The Bible counters that by saying that all people have sinned in Romans chapter 3 verse 23. If we are essentially good as the irreligious would have us believe and we don't need anybody to take us to heaven, if we are essentially good, why do we show moral TV shows to our kids? Why do we teach morals to our kids if they are essentially good? But the kids that were dedicated this morning, they're going to grow up and watch Super Y and Curious George and Daniel Tiger and all the moral lessons that come with them. And we as adults have to, have to keep up with their annoying theme songs and their shallow storylines and their whiny characters. Why? I mean, if they were naturally good, I mean, we don't need to do all that. But we're not. And that is where the world is wrong about righteousness. Wrong about inquest, about judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. In what aspect is the world wrong about judgment? The world was wrong about sin. The world was wrong about righteousness. The world is wrong about judgment. In which way is the world wrong about judgment? In the fact that it believes that there may not be any judgment. Nobody for a second thinks that they are going to hell, right? Nobody thinks that. Nobody walks around thinking, oh, I'm going to, no. Everybody assumes that we're all in it on our way to heaven. If we did think that we were going to hell, 
we would have a different approach to life. We would do something, we would try to do something so that we are not headed to hell. Let me give you one sentence that will, that will combine all three things, the sin, the righteousness, and the judgment. If there is no specific definition of sin, and there is no specific requirement for righteousness, why should there be a specific need for judgment? Right? That is the question that the world will ask. If the world has no specific definition of sin, and there is no specific requirement for righteousness, why do we care about judgment? One of the questions that I have been asked over the course of the years is this question. How can a loving God send people to hell? How can a loving God send people to hell? And when I hear this question, I ask back, how do you know that God is sending a person to hell? Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who was hell made for? It was made for the devil and his angels, not for human beings. If any human being finds himself in hell, it is not because God is sending them there. God did not make hell for humans. The real question is, why would human beings spurn the love of God and choose anything other than heaven? You see, the issue is in opting out versus opting in. Opting out versus opting in. Let me give you an illustration to help us understand this. In the US, 18 people die every day because of the lack of an organ to transplant. Okay, they need a transplant, there is no organ, they die. 18 people die every day. In fact, 120,000 people are in America right now waiting for an organ to get transplanted from somebody to them. 15% of people in America donate their organs at death. Compare that to Austria, where 90% of people donate their organs at death. Why is there such a big difference? 15% in America, 90% in Austria. You see, the difference is in opting in versus opting out. In Austria, there is a law that says, as soon as you are a human being, the checkbox to donate an organ is automatically checked. If you don't want to donate, you have to uncheck that box. In the US, it is the opposite. That box is not checked. By default, we don't donate organs. But if you do want to donate organs, you check the box, and then now you become an organ donor. You see, the question is, what are we at default? By default, if we were all check the box to go to heaven, then it's all well and good. But it is not. We are condemned from birth. And so the box to go to hell has been checked off. 
and we are on that highway to hell. So we need to opt out by choice. We have to make a conscious decision to opt out and uncheck the box and check the box to go to heaven. We've talked about judgment, but who will be the final judge? To answer that question, we're going to look at one more role of the Holy Spirit that underlines every other role, and that is to glorify Jesus. Verse 14 reads, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In all the roles of the Holy Spirit that we looked at this morning, the underlying role for all of them is that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. He never shines a spotlight on himself. He always shines it on Jesus. So the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, and the Father glorifies Jesus because of the severe humiliation and the sacrifice of Jesus, God the Father gave Jesus a unique exaltation, a unique glory. So in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 following, it reads, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, the Father glorifies Jesus. Let me come back to my other question. Who will be the final judge? And we think it may be God. We think it may be God, but John chapter 5 and verse 22 reads, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. It is Jesus who will be judging us. And every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 reads, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. You know how if you're a teacher and you're teaching a lesson and you ask a, a, a general question, a group of students answer the question back, right? I mean, that's a group answer. But then at some point, they're going to take an exam and the group answer is not going to work. They need to give their individual answers. We all are going to stand, and the singularity in that verse is critical. We will stand by ourselves, by himself, by herself, before the judgment seat of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the final question, the final judgment that separates the devout worshiper from the distant wanderer all depends on one question. And the question is this, what did you do about Jesus? And as it turns out, the person asking that question is Jesus himself, because he's going to be that judge. And when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus will ask us the question, what did you do about Jesus? And this is the question that divides whether you're a believer or a non-believer. I want to read one more verse as we close, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Not only will they see him, they will come before him for judgment. 
The guy who pierced him, the guy who put the crown of thorns on him, the guy who uh, hammered the nails into his hands, will all come before him. The guy who spat on his face and pulled out his beard will all come before him in judgment. And so will we. Those of us who have spurned Christ, those of us who have denied him, those of us who have betrayed him, will all come into the presence of God. And the saddest of all situations is that Jesus paid the penalty and put the offer of salvation on the table. And there will be some who will turn away from that offer of salvation that has been left on the table. And they will leave it there and walk away. I'm going to give the opportunity for anybody to respond to this sermon. I want to give the opportunity for two groups of people to respond to this sermon. If there is anyone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you have different ideas about righteousness, sin, and judgment. Maybe you have not moved to uncheck that box. Maybe now you want to invite Jesus into your life. We will pray in just a second. Or maybe there's somebody here who's a believer but not living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Because our own lives are going on. We are too distracted. We have no time for God. We are satisfying the desires of our flesh, even legitimate desires. We are satisfying them. We have no time for God. The Holy Spirit is in us, but he has not filled us. I want to give the opportunity for them to pray as well. Let's pray. If there's anyone here who's never invited Jesus into your life, I beg you, the offer of salvation is on the table. I beg you not to walk away. You can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I was born as a sinner, and I am condemned for eternal death. I ask you to come into my life and make me complete. Thank you for your sacrificial death. Thank you for your burial. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for the hope of eternal life. I ask you to come into my life and make me complete. Help me to live for you. And I ask the Holy Spirit to make me holy every day. In Jesus' name. Amen.